Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. New sizes for containers agreed in the States. Good news for canned wine. Change on premier dates announced in Bordeaux. South Africa also announces revised dates for Cape Fine and Rare Auction. South Korea wine imports on the rise. Mega deal between Constellation and Gallo goes through at last. And as ever, our wine of the week. So first, for our week in wine, there's really not much to report, is there, Matthew? Not for us personally, Katie. There's lots of news happening around the world. But for us, we're kind of stuck at home because Sonoma and Napa counties issued another stay-at-home order, extending it for another month um, on Friday. And so there's nowhere to really go. And so it's been quite uneventful. Uh, Except for the news, of course, that has been quite eventful. Indeed, there's been lots to talk about, but not just not many places to go. When I do speak to people, they ask me, what are you doing this weekend? And I say, well, nothing. And then, what did you do last weekend? Well, um, nothing. But I did see that a dear friend of ours was at Ruder Estate in Mendocino this weekend, because Mendocino County has opened, and so you can actually um, eat and drink outdoors. And so it's not a universal um, closure, but Sonoma and Napa certainly remain closed. Yes, and from a wine industry perspective, it is. it makes it very difficult to plan because, you know, other states within the U.S. are under very different uh, restrictions. Uh, so you, some places you could even, you know, imagine playing an event where it's, that's not something that would happen anytime soon here in Napa and Sonoma. But alas, these are the new times and we're making do as best we can uh, with lots of tasting. So our most recent blind tasting was one that I got to organize um, with our our small group of MW hopefuls. And it included four wines, all from a different grape variety, uh, but a Bordeaux grape variety. And they were all predominant in the blend. And it was quite interesting. I'd say you guys did fairly well, but there was room for improvement for sure. Yes, these are grape varieties, which I do not um, particularly like, I have to say. It's a weak point of mine, so it's good that I get tested on it. But we did get the Cabernet Franc correct. That is the most distinctive and most interesting of grape varieties related to Bordeaux, I think. And then you did insert a cheeky little car. I know we thought it might be Carmenere, but it was actually Merlot from Chile. And it was quite um, a really good tasting test because we realized that Chile red wines often taste of chili pepper. Well, and that's really in that um, kind of entry-level price point, right? So we're talking, a, this was a $9 bottle for seven fifty. dollars uh, So, but yes, I think you could say that there is there is a signature flavor out there for the for Chilean wines of that price point. Um, I haven't quite nailed it down as a, as a chili pepper flavor, but I'll take your word for it. It seemed quite distinct to me. And you'll notice that Katie specifies how much a seven fifty costs. Usually that's how you reference the price of a bottle of wine, but no, not in this case. This is a 187 from an advent calendar from last year where we have some leftover tiny bottles. Very good for tasting, especially for those cheaper styles of wine which we have to know about. Yes, and you can get five tastings from one bottle, so it's perfect for our group. Yeah, so that's how exciting our week has been. We're talking about different sized <laughs> bottles of Chile and Merlot. It's all about alternative formats. Yeah. Yes, and we are going to move on to that in a minute. My, the next week for me 
shapes up to be quite exciting because I have an interview lined up on Friday with Clemence Lelage Peugeot of a champagne producer who lives here in Petaluma near us and also with a good friend of ours, Sophia Luckett, who we both worked with in Manchester, where we're going to talk about Nova Scotia wines, the two very different topics that I'm going to be discussing. And that's for your other podcast, right? Your Matthew's World of Wine and Drink. Yes, and also for my wine club, Blackpool Matt's Wine Club. Mm. I have so many projects, Katie. So many. Well, maybe we're not as bored as we thought. Now, on with the news. The pod has commented on the trend for canned wine in past episodes, quite regularly, and a recent ruling by the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau may cement the rise of the category. The ruling allows for several sizes of containers beyond the traditional 375, 750 and 1.5 litre sizes. Now, wineries can sell their wines in containers, which are 200, 250 and 355 millilitres. Given that cans were limited to traditional sizes, this news may prove beneficial to producers making canned wine. After all, 355ml is the standard size for canned soft drinks, and so that will increase consumer familiarity with the format. Some producers were already selling 250ml cans in four packs because they could register them in the one litre category. Mm. Now they'll be able to sell them separately. And 200ml is a rounded figure rather than the 187ml which was previously mandatory in that size range. Bottles don't benefit as much from these different sizes, as it's more expensive to change the bottling line setup. However, for all the talk around canned wine, it still remains a small category, accounting for half a percent of still wine sales and 2.2% of sparkling wine sales. So Katie, interesting that more uh, sparkling wine is canned than still wine. Do you agree that this move is going to be beneficial for canned wine? I think it's quite exciting that there's different bo- uh, different sizes being allowed. Oh, definitely. I think it kind of goes back to you know when you go pick up a soft drink from the gas station and you don't want to buy a whole six pack you want to buy one can and that's what I thought was always holding back kind of the the canned wine scene was the fact that you can't go in and buy two cans if you just want to take it out for a picnic Um, the fact that you had to buy a pack kind of you know it it puts the price point up um, and then for canned wines you're really looking at that you know, kind of nice, friendly uh, entry-level price point. So as one can, I think people would make it much more accessible. Also, 355 ml, the same size as a can of Coke, for instance. Um, It's familiar for consumers, but it's also slightly smaller than a half bottle. One of the problems I've had with them canned wine is that the cans are are too big. People don't Mm. realize that this fairly high level of alcohol is actually um, quite substantial. It's actually going to get them drunk when you think, oh, it's just a can. It's going to be like a can of beer or or whatever. And then having 250 and 200 ml seems quite sensible, I think, in terms of uh, consumer safety. Yes, that's right. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, it still remains a small category, canned wine. Um, I think we did see it sort of on the rise, and it would be interesting to see uh, kind of what those figures look like uh, since COVID hit, just given that people aren't going out for picnics as much, um, or and perhaps they are more now, um, having to be outdoors and, you know, not being able to go to their local restaurants to have lunch. Maybe people, more people will, will pack it and, you know, go for hikes and bring a bit of canned wine along with them. But maybe just the fact that we're not moving as freely especially in cities when when people don't have as much green space that they can go out uh perhaps that's hurting canned wine sales 
Yeah, I don't know. I think canned wine is now an established category. But I think when people do try wine from the can, they're still sceptical about the, the metallic feel. And that's maybe one reason why it hasn't caught on as much as people think. Although some commentators would say that it that is the future. So it is a category to look out for. And this, these different sizes would seem suited to cans. I really would like um, bottles to be in all these different sizes as well. Although it is expensive for wineries to to bottle in different sizes. I mean, we've just been talking about the Chilean Merlot at 187. Yeah, it's good for tasting, but a 200 or a 250 would be actually quite nice just to, um, if you're just having a wine on your own or just want a glass of wine to share with your friend or partner, that's a really nice size. So it's great that there's much more variety in these sizes, sized containers, even if it does benefit canned wine more than bottles. Well, maybe it will only be a matter of time before it creeps on over to the the bottle size, and maybe they'll find there's new innovation every day, so perhaps they'll find a more affordable way to create these different bottle sizes. Consumers like flexibility. Moving to a more traditional theme in the wine world, the Union des Grands Crus de Bordeaux has officially announced revised dates for this year's Empremur tasting. The event usually occurs in March, but last year they agreed that in 2021 it would take place at the end of April, from the 26th to the 29th, and now the new dates have been made official. The hope, rather than expectation, is that the event will take place in person, with trade and media able to travel to Bordeaux to taste the wines. However, if that isn't possible, the Union will arrange 10 tastings in major cities around the world. Last year, samples were sent to the trade and wine writers, and having tastings around the world would build on that successful format. It seems ambitious, though, doesn't it, that uh, to be holding it in April? That's only... um three months away, and we're in the middle of a huge wave of spikes around the world of COVID-19. But fingers crossed that we're able to travel by then, but it does seem unlikely. But they do have these um, provisions in place with these tastings in major cities, which to me seems like a sensible format anyway, so you don't force people to travel. You can actually have these tastings all around the world, which seems much more environmentally friendly and much more um, practical. Well, and I think all of this, what's happened in 2020 and continuing on to 2021, has forced a lot of these sort of institutions to rethink the way that they they execute their events or do business. Uh, Napa Valley Wine Auction, for example, uh, they're taking another year off. They, they weren't able to host the auction in person last year, and they are purposefully not doing so this year to take a, a year off and really think about, you know, what is the next move and what is the new iteration of the wine auction? I think it will look completely different, however it comes back uh, in future years. So maybe this is an opportunity for Bordeaux to do the same with their on premier tastings, because something like this, a, a global, you know, series of tastings sounds like something that I would go to. Well, you prefer these kind of events um, more than I do, actually being there and networking and meeting lots of people, whereas I find them quite claustrophobic and way too many people. But you still seem in favour of these kind of staggered global events rather than everyone gathering in in one place, which seems very natural to me, but you seem in favour of it too. 
Well, and I think it works into the whole sustainability trend as well in the industry and beyond. Uh, You know, maybe people won't come back even when we are allowed to travel. Perhaps everyone won't just jump on a plane and jet off to the next city because they can uh, for a 24-hour turnaround. Uh, Maybe people will be a little bit more thoughtful about the trips that they make. And so if, you know, these these larger, more global reaching entities will make it possible for people to access those wines or or those initiatives, those events uh, on their home turf, then I think all the better. Agreed. And if there's a non-premier tasting in San Francisco, I'd probably go, whereas I don't really feel the need to fly all the way to Bordeaux for one. Meanwhile, in South Africa, a wine industry desperate for good news announced that the Cape Fine and Rare auction will take place on May 22nd. Last year's event, due to be held in October, was postponed due to government restrictions. The auction will be a combination of virtual and in-person bidding online and from the floor. The auction will take place in Stellenbosch with a series of Zoom interviews with winemakers before the event arranged in conjunction with Christie's in London. So this just uh, continues what we've been talking about, rethinking these kind of events, um, tastings and auctions, and making them much more interactive and virtual and connecting people around the world, which for me seems like a really positive thing that um, people who aren't in South Africa can actually um, talk about these wines and learn about them and buy them and promote them. And South African wine, of course, does need all the support it can get right now. Yes, with the alcohol ban in place currently in South Africa, they're definitely looking to export markets. So what better to than to you know bring the international audience and make it more accessible to them? Yes, exports definitely extremely important, as we've discussed in the pod before. As you just mentioned, with the alcohol ban in South Africa, AB InBev, big um, beer conglomerate, global giant, are challenging the alcohol ban, deeming it unfair to their business and to their industry, and arguing that um, it's discriminatory towards them. Um, towards their um, sales. And so there is some real pushback in South Africa against the the ban on alcohol sales, um, arguing that it's not it's not helpful for stopping the spread of COVID-19. In fact, it's just actually encouraging the sale of illicit alcohol, as we've reported in the past. Well, I know we're far from South Africa right now, but we would agree with that. And hopefully they make some headway. South Korea is an emerging market for wine. Drinking habits have long been dominated by beer and shoju. In fact, South Koreans drink more spirits than any other country in the world per capita. But wine consumption is rising, driven by young women and the unfashionable reputation of the local rice wine. Figures released this week show that in 2020, imports rose from $204 million to $239 million, and that's a trend that is set to continue. Figures also revealed that retail sales of wine are set to reach $2.8 billion in 2022. The wines most imported into South Korea were Chile for reds and France for whites. So good news, Katie, for those countries that have been affected by China's um, provocative attitude towards wine imports. Well, yes, but will it benefit Australia is the question. Well, it's interesting that um, Australia is not in the list 
of the top wines being imported into South into South Korea. It's more Chile, France, Italy, and also interesting that Chile has really targeted China because they have a very good um, trade agreement, and yet they've also uh, targeted South Korea. So maybe the Chileans are uh, targeting targeting their markets a little more purposefully than Australia. Well, and do you know, is it the more entry-level Chilean wines that are going into South Korea, or are they looking for those more premium-priced bottles? The figures didn't reveal the average price bottle of the wines being imported, or at least I didn't see them. I imagine it is going to be the more inexpensive to mid-priced Chilean wine, simply because they're still building their premium uh, model. And if the most red wine imported into South Korea is Chile, it's not going to be all premium. And so that's something that Chile still has to work on, building on their premium market. But if they're building a base and they're being sensible about it and upselling people gradually, then that's a really good market to be in because South Korea is a pretty affluent um, country. Well, and it's a more stable regime and market than China. So I think, you know, if you're going to put your eggs in one basket, then maybe South Korea is one that you could depend on. Well, I would say don't put your eggs in one basket. And maybe that's what Chile's doing. They're not putting all their eggs in China. Um, But yeah, I think South Korea sounds a very interesting market to try and infiltrate because, as I said, it's affluent. But it's also one that's much more used to um, drinking than China is traditionally. Even if it's just beer and shows you that they're used to drinking, if uh, wine is seen as a fashionable alternative, then I think there's a real um, market to get into there. So last Tuesday, January 5th, just missing our cutoff for inclusion in last week's wind-up, Constellation and Gallo have finalized their deal that has been in the works for nearly two years. As discussed previously on the pod, this deal is one of the largest we've seen in modern times, and the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has had a lot to say about it. What started as a $1.7 billion deal is now valued at about $810 million, removing sparkling wines and brandy and a winemaking facility from the New Deal. The Federal Trade Commission's initial reservations and why the deal was cut was that competition would be severely undercut uh, since Constellation and Gallo are two massive wine brands, so it would lower their competition. And it's probably safe to say that even under the new terms, it will still have quite an impact on the wine industry. In another separate transaction that was only initiated last year, Constellation sold Nobilo, a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, for $130 million. So they managed to recoup some dollars there. As we've discussed before, this move essentially eradicates all the entry-level brands from Constellation's portfolio, allowing them to focus on the premium end while Gallo continues to be the Goliath of the low price tiers. Well, we've discussed this on the pod quite a few times because it's been such an um, ongoing deal. Two years in the making. Indeed. and I actually, That's about the length of our podcast, I'd say. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that's maybe why they launched this deal, so it could be reported on the pod. And I actually thought this deal had been concluded, but nope. <laughs> it's only been concluded this week. And there's a lot of money involved, so I understand why, and a lot of brands involved. What this will mean for the consumer, I'm not really sure it will make any difference. When I go into um, our local corner shop, as I would say in the UK, convenience store here, is all Constellation and Callow brands. It's really interesting to look at them and go, yep, I know who owns this, I know who owns that. Now I'm going to have to rework my ownership um, kind of manual as I look at the brands in the shop. 
But apart from that, I don't think it really matters much to the consumer. It matters more to these companies. And definitely more to the trade as a whole, because as you know, the FTC's uh, whole reservations about the competition, you know, that's that's saying a lot. It's making sure that the that Gallo has some competition with these low end price tiers, um, and and who will be that entity to compete with them if Constellation is focused on the more premium end. That's right, because as you say, Constellation has really been quite desperate to get rid of a lot of these brands because they just they don't make money for them, whereas Gallo can absorb them into their huge portfolio. And so it's important to make sure that both companies are, are not dominant in their, um, their spheres. And also, of course, Gallo is entering the premium territory as well. Mm. And so that would also add to their monopoly or, or potential monopoly of the, all these different categories. And so these are categories that have to be um, observed and regulated. And now for our wine of the week, uh, which is Matthew. It's from the Loire Valley, Katie, by a producer called Laurent Erlan. And the wine is called Swan Swan. I was just waiting for that. Swan Swan. And you know what that means. Swan Swan. No, no, that is Boom Boom, literal translation from French. Yeah, it's from 2019. And there is um, a French comedian, uh, Muriel Robin, who has a sketch where she says Swan Swan as much as possible. And I can see why you get addicted to saying Swan Swan. And apparently it's very funny, but I think you have to speak French to get get the humor. Oh, I don't know. I think we've gotten a few chuckles just between the two of us, but maybe that's because we're in lockdown. I don't know. Yes, when you get to the stage where you're saying swan swan all the time, you know that um, it's time to get out. Mm, indeed. Well, this wine is scrumptious. It's a Cabernet Franc and Gamay blend. Two of our favorite grape varieties. Mm. And the color is just incredible on this. It's sort of a neon ruby pink. It's something that you would definitely say, oh yeah, that's something carbonic, natural, all of the above. Uh, but it is really a great wine and a food-friendly one. And that's why it's in a completely clear bottle, mm. to really emphasize the color of the wine. And it makes sense that this wine in its neon form comes from an edgy kind of natural wine producer uh, in the Loire Valley. Actually, a former computer engineer who bought land in Bourgai in 2009, and now he owns six hectares. Yep, yeah, and that would be the Lauren Elan, who is on the label. We still don't know exactly what the alcohol is of this wine. Oh no, on the label, get this. They give a range, 11 to 14%. Yes, I've seen this before in the States. It's for tax purposes. Basically to say it's not below 11%, it's not above 14%. So it falls into that tax bracket. But not very helpful when you actually want to know what the alcohol of the wine is. But we were told that it's 12%. And it does feel like that. It's a pretty mm. light-bodied, low-alcohol red. Yeah. And we shared it with a, a friend of ours in during the tasting, the Bordeaux tasting. And uh, she noted that it was something that she could pretty much guzzle down with a nice turkey next to her. Uh, so again, very food friendly. And she also said that it, it smelled natural. And so um, if you're into more clean wines, fruitier wines, riper wines, let's just say Napa Valley wines, then this wine might feel a bit awkward but 
this is what we like about it. It's edgy, it's weird, it's different, it's unusual. I mean, it's called Boom Boom. It's called Swan Swan. And so, and you can see on the jazzy label and the colour of the wine that it's going to be something quite unusual. And this is what I love about the Loire Valley. I remember we were there about three or four years ago now. And we were in a really cool wine bar in Angers. And there was a book on the table, which is The Natural Wine Producers of Loire. And it was a very big book. Massive. It was like an encyclopedia. Yeah, and they all, all, most of them were men who had big beards. <laughs> so it's kind of like the craft beer movement, but for wine in Loire. And um, Lauren Elan fits into that. And this wine is a perfect representation of the really funky experimental stuff that's going on in the Loire Valley. And that not everything in France is set in stone. And at 12%, something that you and whoever you're sharing your household with can enjoy without any guilt. Yeah, you could drink this wine all day for sure. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening and sticking with us through this new year, 2021. And we just invite you again, as always, to, you know, seek us out on Apple Podcasts. Please rate us, review us. Uh, We are, that is our New Year's resolution, is to gain more listeners, more followers. So we need you to help spread the word. Swan Swan. And don't forget to tune in next week for another wind up. Swan Swan. Boom, boom. Thank you.